Welcome to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. everyone welcome back to the podcast episode number 223 with tim davis now tim before i uh welcome you uh i got a little surprise before it's uh, day nine mate and you're uh suffering from COVID 19 um how how's it been mate because uh, as i said before um i don't actually know anyone that's been affected by it so um do you want to just sort of paint the picture what it's like and you're in los angeles at the moment and you're just saying that it's just rife and crazy there at the moment so mate sorry welcome to the podcast and then do you want to just explain a little bit like the last nine days what it's been like for you yeah yeah first of all thanks for having me on your show dell um i'm glad to be here uh and i'm glad to be on day nine and not back on day one two or three um yeah, just to, for your listeners, COVID is real, <laughs> and uh, it's not not just like the flu. I mean, I always thought if I got it, you know, it'd be just like the flu, and it passed in a few days because I'm a very healthy guy. Um, but for the first three days, I was in bed um, pretty much all day, and I had a fever between 100 and 101. Um, it hit me Monday, December 28th is when I first started having symptoms, um, and I happened to be meeting with my, me and my wife were meeting with our trust attorney at the time. So we had to notify them, you know, cause like halfway through the meeting, I just started feeling tired and a little feverish, but I'm like, oh, I'm okay. But I got home and it got worse. And so her, her law offices have been shut down for two weeks now because my symptoms hit while I was in the middle of meeting with the, this trust oh. attorney. And we were just, you know, because COVID's so bad, my wife and I decided we should get our affairs in order. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we were just, you know, we're 46 and we just like, in case ever something ever happened to us, we just want to make sure everything's lined up for our three kids. But um, as far as the symptoms go, uh, yeah, like uh, it's, it, you know, the first week it was really hard to think straight. Like my brain just felt like it was in this fog. Um, I had no energy to work out and normally I work out an hour or two every day. Um, so I took a complete week off of working out. Um, what else? Uh, the cough is still there. I got this weird, it's just this weird little short cough and phlegm, a lot of phlegm. Uh, so that's mostly been it. Just really extremely fatigued the first week. Um, I'm on day nine now. Um, the last two days I have gotten on my stationary bike and done some of my little resistance bands, kind of home workout routine stuff a little bit. Um, and uh, luckily for me, I mean, I live in Southern California. I have a house with a pool and a jacuzzi. And, uh, you know, I got, we got things to do here, but it's still like, I'm a trail runner and I can't wait to get back, you know, out of the house, but we're not allowed to, to leave the house until we get a negative test. So uh, I'm going to go get tested Thursday and, and uh, I'll probably still test positive because this thing stays in you for like 14 days. And apparently you can test positive for up to three months after you first got it. So uh, oh, I'm just wow. uh, excited to hopefully get a negative test and get back out, you know, to my, my local trails and the places I like to train to run, bike and swim and stuff. So um, yeah, well, that, that's, that's like crazy to be honest. So it, what's the thought of, obviously you were saying, Tim, that, you know, you're a bit foggy and things like that. What, 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 what's your energy like thinking about doing work or doing a podcast like this? Is it, but is that something, cause I know we we're talking before that you normally really upbeat a lot of energy and with all the triathlons, ultra running you do, mate, that's a given, but is it like the persona different or the energy different when you're thinking about working while you've got COVID? Um, a little bit, um, I'm, you know, you know, by day and my, my job that pays the bills, I'm a high school teacher. Um, and with, uh, I teach with Los Angeles Unified School District and we have three weeks off for, um, 
for winter break or Christmas break. And, uh, you know, the first week was great. You know, I, I took off to Utah, did some slot canyons, did some trail running, this and that. And then, uh, you know, we kind of did our Christmas celebrations. Um, luckily, I didn't pass it on to my mom. I got it. I must have got it the day after Christmas because we did Christmas Eve at my mom's. Um, and uh, she's very high risk. So we're glad that she's safe. Um, and then uh, what's it been? The, but the last two weeks of my vacation, I got COVID. So I had all these wonderful plans to go do some more, you know, trail exploration and just get outdoors and do some stuff. And, uh, and now, now I'm landlocked at home until I can get a negative test, you know, and I'm just, you know, we got a few different friends that have brought us dinners and groceries, you know, we order stuff on Amazon now, you know, like groceries, Instacart or whatever, but yeah, yeah it's weird uh, not being able to leave the house, you know. Wow. So for, for listeners out there, COVID is real. And uh, I think that yeah. is something that uh, people do need to hear and the effects it's having in all over the world still. So um, we'll get back to that a little bit, but I want to talk about your story, Tim, because I find it really fascinating, mate, that um, do you want to talk a little bit about your childhood? Because it was quite traumatic and, and things like that to get where you are now. So do you want to sort of paint the picture a little bit for the listeners, mate? Okay. Uh, I don't know how much time we have, but I'll, I'll try as, to sum as it up. As long as you need. As long as you need, mate. <laughs> Okay, well, um, let's see, you know, obviously, I, I'm in, I, I'm American, <laughs> for your listeners, uh, I grew up on the east coast of America, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, moved when I was three, uh, we ended up settling about an hour south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in uh, northern West Virginia, small town, a university town, and uh, let's see, I'm the third oldest of seven kids, big Catholic family, uh, you know, me and my brothers were all altar boys, and my mom sent us all to Catholic school for as long as she could afford to, uh, well, my mom and dad. Um, my dad um, was uh, an attorney, and, uh, you know, we were a pretty, uh, you know, middle-income family until uh, age 13. Um, when I was 13, you know, my dad and I and my sister, we were playing chase and having tickle wars, and uh, my dad had been drinking. Um, it was a Saturday, like he normally does on the weekends. And, uh, you know, we, I ran out onto our balcony saying, ha, 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 you can't catch me. And I ran down the balcony back in the other side of the house. He followed after me, but he didn't quite make that, that right turn back into the house. And he, uh, he ended up uh, falling off our two-story balcony and landed head first. And uh, that was a crazy night. That was kind of a night that changed my life uh, at age 13. Um, he ended up being in a coma for about eight months before he ended up expiring and dying. Uh, and then uh, that night... Um, you know, my mom, you know, the ambulance came and, uh, you know, I was the first one down there in, the, in our driveway and saw my dad like that. And, you know, I yelled for our neighbors to call, you know, yell for help. And, you know, my, me and my mom and my sister were panicking. And uh, eventually my mom got off to the, you know, the hospital and she told me and my little sister to put my, my three little brothers to sleep. Because uh, while this uh, accident had happened, my three little brothers were ages two, three and five. And my mom was giving them their baths, you know. So the, um, we had to finish getting them ready for bed and me and my sister were freaked out. And uh, anyway, we finally calmed down, got them to sleep. And we eventually fell asleep ourselves. And then around three in the morning, my older brother came home from, because he was at work. Uh, he was 17. He had a you know, McDonald's job. He came home and he proceeded to rip me out of my bed. You know, he was always an abusive older brother. Uh, and he proceeded to, to beat me uh, very severely and blame me for the fact that, you know, our dad was going to die because of me. It was all my fault. So here I am at age 13, um, getting brutally beaten up for about an hour or so. And, uh, you know, he slammed me into every wall in my room and just cussing and yelling at me. You know, it's all your fault, effing fault. Dad's going to effing die because of you. How could you do this? Blah, blah, blah. And uh, it was just, you know, at age 13, I really thought it was my fault that my, my dad died, you know. And uh, I carried that cross with me for a long time. Uh, it led me to, you know, 
using drugs and alcohol to escape the pain. And I, I you know, didn't know it then, but I, I self-medicated with drugs and alcohol for almost 20 years before I finally got sober. Uh, I was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder at age 27. And uh, so I had to grapple with that too. And that was just after the first year or two of me trying to get sober that I got diagnosed with a bipolar disorder. And, uh, you know, my life is a kind of a roller coaster. I was a train wreck for a long time. I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, I always got good grades. I managed to graduate from college on time. Um, but after college is when my, my drinking and drugging kind of really spiraled out. And uh, I married my freshman sweetheart from, from college. And uh, God bless her. She's still with me today. <laughs> uh, and I put her through the ringer. I always said, uh, if I were her, I would have left my ass a long time ago. But we're both <laughs> glad. <laughs> we're both glad she stuck around because we've been together 27 years, been married 23 years, and uh, I've been sober 13 and a half years. Uh, so, and, and in recovery, and uh, in recovery, uh, you know, I uh, did a lot of therapy, and I found exercise as as a tool to help me uh, stay sober and kind of channel my my positive addictions and energy. Um, and keep me out of trouble, you know, because I go to my 12-step meetings, I see my psychiatrist, and I, I take my bipolar medications, and, uh, and I exercise, you know, and, and that's what I like to always tell people, you got to take care of the mind, body, and spirit. It just took me a long time to figure out how to do that. Uh, you know, we're all complicated beings, um, but, you know, in sobriety, I've gone on to, uh, you know, start doing triathlons, and start doing Ironman triathlons, and start doing ultras, and just, uh, you know, keep trying to take it up another level, you know, because I asked myself, what would David Goggins do? You know, I got to try and be like this <laughs> world's toughest man. I mean, I'm nowhere near his level, but, you know, I, <laughs> he's certainly an inspiration. He's a little too crazy for me sometimes, but uh, <laughs> you got to um, admire his, his uh, I guess, his get going or his whatever, his drive. Yeah. And, and with that, sorry to hear about your childhood, but David Goggins, very similar, had a, you know, trauma sort of upbringing, different circumstances. But do you know what I mean? He was went through that abuse and trauma growing up as well. So how did, how did you like, get out of that? You know, the, the cycle of self-medicating with alcohol and drugs team, like what was, how did that happen, mate? Because once you're in that spiral and for doing it for that, that period of time, it must've been pretty challenging. Yeah, it was, it was very challenging. Uh, I'm not one of those uh, probably blessed and lucky few that, uh, you know, go to rehab the first time and end up just getting sober and staying sober, you know, forever after that. Um, most people like go to rehab, don't get it the first time. And uh, I went to rehab like half a dozen times, you know, and, and each time I, after I'd stay sober for a little while, maybe 30 days, 60 days, maybe even six months. And, uh, but then I, this little thing would click in my head. Like you've been sober for, you know, a little while, mate, you can have just one drink or, you know, one joint. <laughs> and it was never just one drink or one joint. Um, I think at age 27, uh, my little, my baby brother, he was 16 at the time. And uh, we were, you know, I party with my little brothers all the time. You know, we all started very young and uh, I was driving with him and uh, we had been doing a lot of methamphetamine at the time. And uh, I, I had wanted to finally go to sleep because I'd been up for like a week. And uh, so I took wow. a bunch of downers. I know this is a crazy night. <laughs> took a bunch of downers because I'm like, man, I really need to get some sleep. I've been up for like a week, you know, and it's like hearing things, you know, delusional. And so I took all these downers and they weren't working. So I'm like, well, let's just go get some more drugs, you know. And so uh, we're, we were driving to go get some more drugs. And then finally those downers kicked in. And so I ended up crashing my car and I, I smashed into the back of a parked car. Luckily, nobody was in the car. But my little brother was sitting in the front passenger seat with no seatbelt on and his head went through the windshield and he got like a broken nose and a black eye. And, uh, you know, I, I got I got scared sober, you know, 
And, uh, you know, my car was totaled. The other car's person, there was one that bad. But anyway, it was around 11 o'clock at night. You know, the authorities came and uh, they hauled my car away and they made me do the sobriety test. And like, I passed their test. <laughs> so I don't know how I passed their test, but I walked the straight line and I, you know, was like just praying to God, like, please don't let me get a DUI and go to jail and blah, blah, blah. So God was looking out for me. Uh, I think it's because I'm a high school teacher. And uh, if you get a felony, you can't be a teacher anymore. So that's God's purpose for me is to be a teacher. So he, he spared me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was the first time I realized that, you know, my drinking and using could actually hurt somebody else. Up until age 27, I thought I'm not hurting anybody but myself. But once I did that, I was like, whoa, I could have killed my little brother, you know, and that was kind of like a, one of my first moment of clarities where I really started to surrender. Um, and fortunately, I, I had a couple more relapses after that. But uh, the last relapse I had, uh, my sponsor in AA at the time, he took me um, to a funeral. He had this guy that he got sober with and the guy uh, had 15 years sober, but then he relapsed and he died a week later. So he took me to this funeral and he's like, you know, but for the grace of God, there go I. That could be any one of us. We have a, you know, a deadly disease. Alcoholism, drug addiction doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care if you're white, black, uh, rich, poor, whatever, you know, gay, straight. It does not care. It's an equal opportunity ass kicker. And it can take any one of us out. You look at all the famous celebrities that die from overdoses or whatever else, you know, he's like, it could be any one of us. Uh, then he took me back to my sober living house and my rehab I was in. And he told me to walk around the room with all the other guys that were all these other new guys and they're all trying to get sober. And he's like, you know, all those guys and yourself included, you're all just a bunch of dead men walking. And uh, he proceeded to take me outside and talk to me. He's like, you know what? You can keep doing what you're doing and what you've been doing and relapse again. And, and you could die. And he's like, you know what? Your wife and your kids will be sad, but eventually they'll move on. She'll find another man to replace you, you know, another man to be her husband and be the father of your children. And when he told me all that, that's when I was just like, Oh, no, that can't happen. You know, my dad died when I was little. I can't do the same thing to my kids. And that was when I like really surrendered and I said, God, just please help me. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I want to be the father to my children and the husband to my wife. You know, I don't want to be replaced, you know. And so I just surrendered and really grabbed onto the program and started working all of the 12 steps. And that was like the catalyst when he, he had that conversation with me. And, and I really heard him and took it to heart. And I, you know, just that channeled me into just taking it one day at a time and praying to God that I don't ever forget how bad it can get for me when I do drink and use drugs. Cause I just kept getting into more and more trouble and I was tired of getting into more and more trouble. <laughs> well, Tim, that, that is uh, honestly, that is an incredible story. And one that, uh, did, so did, do you use that with your high school students? Like, obviously there's certain things you can tell and certain things you can't, but um, do you talk about, you know, decisions that you have made in your life and you were just mentioning there before that when the realization came that it wasn't just affecting yourself that you could have killed somebody else or that you had a wife and kids um do you talk about like obviously decisions you make don't just affect you and obviously you've got a really a, a powerful story to back that up um i talk about that in a general way with my students um because i've been teaching high school for 20 years now and uh you know up until this last year, I really kind of protected my anonymity, you know, because I worked the 12-step, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous programs. And uh, I always kind of was afraid that if, you know, students at work found out that they might just say, oh, that Mr. Davis, he's a drunk or he's an addict, you know, and, you know, because high school kids are just ruthless and, you know, rumors spread and this and that, you know. So I always felt like, you know, not enough students would be mature enough to, to respect me if they knew that 
truth about me. And I was also worried that, you know, administrators and other coworkers might discriminate against me. So there's a reason it's an anonymous program. So I felt like I had to kind of maintain my anonymity in the workplace um, just to avoid any kind of stigmas or unnecessary prejudice or stereotypes against me. Um, and, but uh, whenever students came to me and told me like, you know, Mr. I'm having this or that problem, uh, or my, you know, my dad's drinking a lot or whatever this and that, I would always be like, you know, uh, I have a lot of experience with that. You know, some people in my family that are really close to me, you know, had the same experiences and I was meeting myself, you know, and had to yeah, go to rehab course. several times, you know? So I would just always say that, you know, and if they ask more questions, you know, I have four brothers. So I'd be like, yeah, I was one of my brothers, you know, but I was usually really talking about myself and my own experience and just trying to, to connect with them and relate with them and, you know, share whatever experience, strength and hope I can offer them to hopefully help them through their situation. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to message there because it's all well and good. And um, a lot of the people listening to these podcasts, Tim, are teachers, you know, I'm a teacher myself and um, people, students particularly learn through story and through experiences. And it's all well and good to tell people what to do but when you can actually say you've lived and breathed this and these are the decisions you're making that could affect and these this is what happened to me and the choices i made it, it becomes really powerful doesn't it yeah yeah it really does um i'm learning so especially in the last year because uh we haven't mentioned it yet but I, I wrote this book called tripolar and uh up until then you know uh, i never really told people that i had bipolar disorder and i didn't tell a lot of people about my my, my kind of my, my dark past with drugs and alcohol I really kept it, you know, anonymous and, and only my close family and a few close friends knew about that. But now I wrote this book and uh, I basically, you know, ripped the bandaid off because <laughs> the book's out there and anybody can, anybody can read my story now. So uh, I didn't know that that was going to happen. I just, oh, a lot of, for years, people told me, you should write a book. You got a crazy story, man. People should hear your story. So I finally sat down and wrote it. And now I'm like, whoa, now I'm a mental health advocate. And I had no idea <laughs> that that was going to be the thing, but here I am. So... <laughs> Uh, I, I think that's really an important thing. And, and like you mentioned there, how come you like, you, did you keep like your bipolar a secret? Was there a reason for that? Or you just didn't feel it was necessary to share with people? Was there a reason for that, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my experience with the other people I know who either maybe were bipolar or knew other people that had bipolar um, were of the more severe type because there's a, you know, there's type one bipolar and type two bipolar and there's a few variations on the type two. I'm a type two rapid cycler. But uh, I think, you know, you hear about the type one bipolar, the severe manic depressive and, you know, some of the things that severe type ones have done and maybe even type twos have done, you know, getting, you know, committing suicide, homicide, all kinds of crazy things, you know, and all the stigmas associated with that. So I, I was very afraid to have people know about that part of me because I thought that they would, you know, basically, you know, project those stigmas on me and think that I, you know, I could be capable of homicide or who knows what else, uh, which I've never done. And I don't plan on it. <laughs> God willing. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a pacifist. Uh, so anyway, um, so yeah, I was worried about all that, you know, for 19 years, I kind of hid behind it. And I, I, like I said, I only told a few, you know, my, my direct family and a few close friends knew about my bipolar and I just really kept it on the hush hush and private. Um, but now that I wrote the book, it's out there. So, uh, you know, the, the whole world can know, you know, if people read my book and, you know, and learn more about me and my story. So, but so yeah, like I said, that's, you know, I didn't realize writing this book was going to turn me into a mental health advocate, but here I am trying to Tell other people you can be brave and be talk about it. You know, this is 2020. Um, we've come a long way in the mental health field. You know, I think uh, most people are really understand the importance of mental health now. Maybe not so much, uh, you know, a couple of generations ago or whatever, even a generation ago. 
Mm, very true. And, and mate, you just said it's like ripping a Band-Aid off. I would say it's like ripping the carpet out of your house. It's that big, the, the Band-Aid that you've pulled off, mate. So how how was that? Like, obviously, it's probably extremely liberating now and the impact it's having. But I can imagine the, I suppose, the vulnerability that you were putting yourself out there. How hard was the process of actually creating the book and putting it out to the world and, and putting yourself out there to be judged and um, everything like that? Um, well, you know, it was very therapeutic. I, I don't think um, uh, I really thought about, you know, I guess how scary it could be until after I'd already finished writing the book. <laughs> um, and then after I wrote the book, I'm like, wow, whoa, whoa, whoa. I just told, I just told a lot of deep, dark secrets here. <laughs> but I'm like, well, it's too late now, you know, because I'm, I'm the kind of guy, once I commit to something, uh, it's going to take like, a, you know, Thor, the god of the universe, to try to stop me from achieving my goal. Because I'm like, once I set my mind to something, I just pursue it, you know. So once I wrote that rough draft, I was like, all right, I got to find an editor and make this into, you know, something that's, you know, reader friendly and, uh, you know, that, that readers will enjoy and that, that a story that moves, you know, and doesn't just stagnate, you know. So I, I've hired an editor and we we toned it down from like over 100,000 words down to 80,000 words and really made it flow with the narrative style. And, uh, you know, once I had the editor and I paid them, you know, I was like, now I got to hire a marketing consultant, you know, and I just kept moving forward. I'm like, what's the next thing we got to do? You know, so it's like there was there was no turning back once I once I, you know, really, you know, got the manuscript written. So I love that. And for everyone listening, um, I'll have links for Tim's website and Tripolar, um, the story of a bipolar triathlete in the show notes, episode number 200 and uh, 223. Now, Tim, what's the impact been since you wrote your book and put your story out there, like you were saying, you now obviously a big mental um, health advocate and things like that. Um, what's what's the reaction been for you personally, and then the impact it's had? Well, for me personally, you know, it's been very therapeutic, um, and you know, I I self published the book in July, right in the middle of this COVID pandemic. Um, so there was no opportunity to go to race expos or other places and try and, uh, you know, go on uh, like a real physical book tour. Um, but uh, it's presented the opportunity for me to go on like, I think this is the 30th podcast I've been on <laughs> since, uh, <laughs> since August, uh, you know. And they're a lot of fun. And I get to share my story with people like you, all these podcast hosts and their listeners. And, uh, uh, you know, some people have reached out to me and, you know, because either they have mental health issues or other people have mental health issues. Uh, other people have reached out to me because they want tips on training for triathlon or ultra marathon. So uh, it's been really cool because, uh, you know, my story, you know, it's called tripolar, which, you know, because I found, you know, triathlons, a love for triathlons and ultras as a way of helping me kind of just be happy and, and serene and stable. Um, but it's also like, you know, my book has three aspects of it that I, I feel like can inspire and help other people. If, you know, if you're struggling with mental health issues or if you're struggling with addiction and recovery issues, or if you're struggling with weight and physical fitness issues, you know, I, it appeals to people with any one or all three of those issues, you know, cause those are all, you know, things I had to overcome and still do one day at a time, you know, so it's cool, like to be able to try and inspire and help others with, you know, issues that. I, I feel like I've overcome for the most part, but again, it's a one day at a time thing. So, yeah, uh, mate, Tim, I absolutely love that. Now, you, you're talking a lot about ultras and triathlons. Now, that isn't something like it's it's helped you recover, but mate, you've taken that to another level. You've done twelve Ironmans, seven hundred mile endurance races, one double Ironman. That sounds crazy, uh, and several twenty yeah, four hour races, mate. Like you're you're an extremist in in the nicest possible way. Like that's crazy. <laughs> like what you put your body through, mate. Like 
But what's if like obviously the training must be incredible, but what's the feeling like when you're going for 24 hours plus? Um, you know, it's it's like a roller coaster. You have your highs and your lows. Um, especially running hundred mile runs, which has been my thing the last handful of years. Um, you know, you start at most races start five or six a.m. and you're feeling good, you know, and you're running, you know, you stop every five or ten miles at an aid station to get a little more, you know, fluid and food. And uh you do, um, I feel like, you know, you just kind of cruise at a, you know, you're not running at like a sprint pace. You're running at a very slow endurance pace, you know, and you, you know, most of the ones I do are in the mountains. So you're, you're hiking uphill and then running downhill and you know, it's a lot of technical terrain. So, it, but it's beautiful. The mountains, the Angeles mountains around here and the other places I've done them. Uh, but then when night hits, uh, you know, things uh, start to slow down, especially around midnight. I always kind of hit this. A lot of people say somewhere between midnight and two to three to four a.m. You just like start feeling like a zombie, and your brain gets foggy, and you, know, <laughs> especially because you got your headlamp on, and all you can really see is this like tunnel vision from what your headlamp and the light in front of you shows. <laughs> and so you start maybe sometimes even seeing things at night, you know, because you've been running for over twenty hours and. Um, Things, you know, the, the, the night can be pretty dark, <laughs> uh, but then it's crazy when the sun comes up, you know, 5, 6 a.m., you just get this second wind. It's like your body just knows, hey, the sun's up. It's time to go. I'm an early riser, so it's like it's time to do our thing, you know, and most Saturdays and Sundays I'm waking up at 5 or 6 a.m. or sometimes even earlier to go on a long bike ride or a long run, um, and it just you get the second wind. And it's like, okay, you know, and it's like you kind of don't think about it. I also use a, a wee bit of caffeine to get me through the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you do <laughs> and uh yeah it's it's uh, you know there are people out there doing even longer races actually my, my, the next big race I'm signed up for this year um is the Tahoe 200 mile endurance run which has a 100 hour time limit um so it's basically four um, a little over four days so so you, and that, that's the one I'm pretty sure like you just pull up at certain spots and sleep and then you keep going isn't it yeah yeah you could pretty much pull off the trail anywhere and sleep they also do have six aid stations that actually have sleeping cots and i think you have either a three to six hour time limit to be on the cot so wow. i'm hoping to take some power naps because i can't see myself being awake for four days straight unless i was using methamphetamine again which is, <laughs> that's not part of my training plan anymore <laughs> never part of my training plan <laughs> for people listening that's uh, obviously not the way to do it now yeah um, yeah yeah that, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're all right, mate. Um, I just think your story is incredible, mate. And it really shows that even if things aren't going that well for you at the moment, that with hard work, dedication, the right people, you can turn that around. And really at the end of the day, Tim, that was all on you, wasn't it? Like you were the one that owns your responsibilities, your actions and the decisions you made. And um, at the end of the day, it was hard, but how good has it been sober? Oh, it's been amazing. My life has been transformed. Um, you know, I still go to, yeah, I'm very active in 12 step fellowships and, uh, they talk about this thing called the promises. If you work the 12 steps and, uh, they talk about how you can live a life beyond your wildest dreams, you know, and it's just like most people who actually get sober and stay sober, especially us in the 12 step programs, you know, it's like when we compare what our life was to what it is now, everybody I know who's worked all 12 steps and is staying sober doing amazing things, you know, it's just, it's so, I just, it's, I'm just blessed and I, I'm thankful to God, my higher power for, you know, helping me change my life and being able to do all these things. Like, cause when I was just trying to get sober, I just wanted to get sober. I had no dreams of trying to do Ironmans and ultras or write a book or anything else or going to get a master's degree, which I've also done in sobriety. 
So those are all just like bonuses, you know, like gifts that I didn't even expect to receive from from God and from, you know, just like you said, working hard and being persistent, yeah. you know. And, and I think it's it's a really nice fitting way to finish there, Tim, that um, you can achieve anything you want um, when you put the work in. And um, if you want to obviously get in contact with Tim, I'll have links in the show notes. As I said, episode number 223, grab his book, Tripolar, reach out on the website. Um, so many, uh, you're a very fascinating man, mate. You've got so many different angles to go with, you know, like the mental health, <laughs> uh, recovery, uh, but then also, you know, extreme training with your triathlons and ultras. So, um yeah, if people are listening, reach out to you, mate, because um, your story has blown me away. And for me personally, thanks for being on the show. And I hope the recovery from COVID um, is a quick one, mate. It's, uh, yeah, I, I don't wish that upon anybody, but it was really nice for you to share the the feeling and, and the side effects of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine, you know, people in Australia are probably way better about wearing masks and stuff. You know, you probably guys probably haven't made it a political thing like some people over here have. <laughs> As Americans, we're freaking, uh, I hate to speak for my fellow Americans, but a lot of us are just not very smart, you know, and we don't trust science. Well, I trust science, but a lot of Americans seem to not trust science. And it's just, you know, it's like if the CDC says and the World Health Organization says we should do this, we should probably do this. You know, <laughs> they, they're the experts, right? They have the degrees, you know, like. But anyway. Uh. Oh, yeah, I do understand that, mate. And it is, I think that's the hardest thing with everything we're going through, that minority of people are doing the right thing, and it's the ones that aren't doing the right thing that are spreading it. And that's why we are where we are. And I think, uh, yes, America made, a, a, I think, a poor decision with, you know, a political thing over masks and no masks. But yeah. it's, do you know what I mean? There, there, there are poor decisions everywhere. And I suppose that's where, again, you've got to control what you can. And essentially, that's what you've been doing for, you know, the last part of your life, mate. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully America can be an example of, to other countries of what not to do. <laughs> Sadly, sad to say, we're an example of what not to do with, with a pandemic. So. Anyway, too, I really like that, mate. I love your story. Thanks for sharing, great man. I really appreciate you being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me.